picking up where we left off. A Holling Center podcast. Hosted by Michael Carroll. Welcome to Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm Michael Carroll, Executive Director for the Holling Center for International Dialogue. The Holling Center has held over 50 dialogue conferences on topics in international relations, such as human security, responsible business, the environment, regional policy, and higher education. During those dialogues, we heard fascinating discussions with renowned experts in multiple fields and from many countries. Often following these dialogues, we ponder the question, what's next? To answer that, we decided to bring back some of the experts that continue the discussions and further new ideas. Every two weeks, we'll cover a different topic with two of our past participants. Welcome to the Holling Center's podcast, Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm your guest host, Sanem Gunnar, Assistant Director of the Holling Center. In his 2011 address to the Australian Parliament, U.S. President Barack Obama said that enduring U.S. interests in the Pacific demand an enduring presence in the region, and that speech was considered the U.S. declaration of a pivot to Asia. Trade and security disputes with China and North Korea had for long been the focal point of U.S. foreign policy in the region, resulting in Southeast Asia receiving a somewhat secondary attention from the United States and mainly through the lens of U.S.-China competition. In 2018, the Holling Center held a dialogue conference in Jakarta, Indonesia, bringing together experts from Southeast Asia, China, and the United States to discuss how the U.S. can refurbish its policy vision for Southeast Asia on security, trade, and people-to-people relations for better cooperation on regional and global challenges. The dialogue orbited around questions of U.S. support for democracy in the region, how to expand and benefit from Southeast Asia's collective economic potential, focusing on soft power strengths such as technology, education, and commerce, and the impact of U.S.-China competition on the region. To pick up where we left off, two participants from the 2018 dialogue join me today. Dr. Prashant Parmeswaran is a fellow at the Wilson Center, Deputy Head of Research at Bauer Group Asia, an instructor at the Foreign Service Institute and a senior columnist at The Diplomats based in Washington, D.C. He holds a Ph.D. and an M.A. in International Affairs from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and a B.A. in Foreign Affairs and Peace and Conflict Studies from the University of Virginia. He is the author of the newly released Elusive Balances, Shaping U.S. Southeast Asia Strategy uh, that came out from Palgrave Macmillan. Welcome, Prashant. Thanks. Good to join you. Gautra Priyandita is an analyst at Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPI, uh, ASPI's International Cyber Policy Center, where he leads a project researching cyber-enabled IP theft. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Pacific Forum, where he is continuing his study on Sino-Indonesian relations. Gautra is a political scientist by training, specializing in the study of foreign policy and security in Southeast Asia. Prior to joining ASPI, He completed his PhD in political science at the Australian National University, where he studied Indonesia's response to the rise of China since the end of the Cold War. He holds a BA from the same university. Welcome, Gatra. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Gatra, let me begin by asking you to walk us through why the United States needs to pay more sustained foreign policy attention to Southeast Asia. 
Right. So when we talk about Southeast Asia's importance to the United States or any other great power for that matter, I think it's probably important to start off with some key geographic and demographic facts. Um, so Southeast Asia is a region that connects the Indian Ocean with East Asia. Um, it is home to some of the most important sea lanes in the world, the South China Sea, the Malacca Strait. Um, and it, it, it's also connected, it's also neighbors both India and China, which are um, obviously China being a great power in India, a major regional power in Asia. And it's also not too distant from Japan, which is also another major regional power. Um, now, demographically, the region is also pretty big. It is home to over 600 million people. Um, it's home to Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, which are some of the biggest economies in the global south. Uh, now, these, these factors matter because I think uh, historically, the United States has also considered them to be important factors. If you go back and look at US documents from dating back all the way from the beginning of the Cold War, it's Southeast Asia's geographic and economic and demographic importance that really stood out. Um, after the end of the Second World War, uh, the region's strategic importance stood out because firstly, it was a important, uh, it was a region located in a very strategic, it was a very strategically important region, uh, has huge population, and it's also relatively underdeveloped, making it very vulnerable to, uh, you know, communist intrusions and all that. Um, and U.S. foreign policy in the region was driven by this effort to empower anti-communist uh, forces, including regimes. Um, and the United States provided military assistance. It provided a lot of development aid. Um, and uh, it, as a way to sort of empower these governments, anti-communist governments, from uh, potential communist threats. Um, now, after the end of the Cold War and after 9-11, security dimensions also became important, fa important factors in the U.S.'s relationship with Southeast Asia. Indonesia being the largest, uh, you know, being uh, the biggest Muslim majority nation in the world, uh, had uh, a serious problem with Islamic fundamentalism. And there was serious threats, especially in the early 2000s, of some parts of the region being, uh, you know, vulnerable, at, at risk really to, uh, you know, Islamist encampments. Um, so th that that became uh, a, a driver of the relationship and, and why Indonesia, uh, well, Southeast Asia as a region remain important to the U.S. Uh, and most recently, it is really the rise of China, right, that has uh, driven, uh, boosted really the region's importance to the U.S. Uh, Southeast Asia is, is one of the uh, biggest recipients of Chinese investment, uh, has strong social and economic ties, um, and it also faces challenges in the South China Sea. Uh, many claimant states are based in Southeast Asia, right? Or have been overlapping disputes with, with the United States, with, with China. Um, so uh, Southeast Asia's importance to the U.S. has strategic components. There are also economic components. You know, the United States remains one of the biggest investors in the region. Uh, and uh, on trade, it is lagging behind China, especially in the past 10 to 20 years. And part of this because is because of geography, really, by virtue of geography. Sino, China's economic relationship with Southeast Asia will always be quite strong. Um, there's also a degree of complementarity there. Um, but the United States uh, has also struggled more recently in trying to uh, maintain some presence and influence over uh, uh, basically international trade arrangements, uh, especially after uh, the, uh, you know, Donald Trump became president, uh, you know, leaving the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and uh, the biggest challenge right now to the United States uh, in, in the context of uh, of Southeast Asia's place in the world, especially vis-a-vis -vis China, is just that it's it's really not having any serious. I I think uh, it's it's really struggling to compete with China when it comes to international trade arrangements. Let me um, turn to you, uh, Prashant. Here, your book is about how it's been a challenge for U.S. policymakers to translate Southeast Asia's importance 
um, that, that we just talked about into commitments. Could you tell us why it has been so? And uh, what does the United States need to do to reinvigorate its engagement with the region? I think the big challenge for U.S. policymakers, um, really since the end of the Vietnam War, especially when the United States withdrew from the region, and there's a lot of uh, been a lot of uh, changes and recalibrations in how the U.S. thinks about its interests over the past, you know, 50 years, is you know the U.S. policymakers have to balance two sets of balances uh, when they're doing their their foreign policymaking and thinking about Southeast Asia. One is a domestic set of balances. They they have a sense of what their interests are um, in Southeast Asia, but you know it's a matter of not just capabilities and power. It's a matter of you know what are the threats and challenges that the United States faces, not just in Southeast Asia but regionally and globally. And then how does the United States marshal those in resources that are necessary for the United States to actually commit to the region? So that's one set of balances. The other set of balances are sort of the regional balances, right? What do the countries in Southeast Asia actually want? Um, and at times, the United States has done a lot security-wise, but not enough economically, as Gatra was just talking about. The Trans-Pacific Partnership was still continues to be, I, th I think, a really big lost opportunity for the United States. Um, ASEAN and, and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations has played, you know, whatever its limits, a, a huge role in terms of reinforcing peace and stability in Southeast Asia. Some U.S. administrations have been very engaged. Other administrations have not been um, so engaged. And I think the book tries to explain why. I think the first thing you talk, when you talk to Southeast Asian policymakers or U.S. policymakers who work on Southeast Asia, they all essentially say the same thing. The first sentence is, you know, we see our commitment as being a series of ebbs, flows, and imbalances, right? And the question is really, why do these imbalances, ebbs, and flows exist? And the book's main argument is this doesn't, this has less to do with any individual administration or, you know, factors that are often talked about, like Southeast Asia is inherently diverse. So, you know, it's going to always going to be hard to fashion a strategy for Southeast Asia. I, I don't believe that's true. And I think if we look at the, the past 50 years, you've talk to policymakers, as I did for the book, you review the documentation, it's very clear that there are structural challenges in U.S. policy that um, impede um, the United States from translating Southeast Asia's importance, which I think Gautra laid out very well, to commitments, which is, I think, what the region is actually looking for, not just rhetoric. Yeah, I, I, would, I would break that up into maybe three pieces. One is just there needs to be an elevation of Southeast Asia as a priority with an overall U.S.-Asia policy and overall U.S. foreign policy. I think that means we need, you know, a lot more Southeast Asianists um, within the high levels of the U.S. government, um, not just in the Pentagon, the State Department. We also need them at the NSC. I think there are, um, you know, new generations of Southeast Asianists that are coming up. The Asia bureaucracy tends to be dominated a lot by China specialists and Japan specialists, and I think everybody recognizes that. I think there's two other pieces. You know, one is uh, kind of broadening and deepening. Um, broadening, I would say, you know, one of the great advantages, I think, of the United States is that unlike some other governments, China in particular, U.S. engagement in Southeast Asia is really not about the U.S. government. And I think if we frame it that way, it's going to be very limiting. Um, there's a lot of organizations that do great work. The private sector, as Gautra mentioned, is tremendous importance. And they want to be intentionally separate from the U.S. government um, because, you know, the, there's ebbs and flows, but business always wants to be involved in Southeast Asia. But also think tanks, um, NGOs. 
I mean, you talked about the Holland Center, you know, where we were brought together for these dialogues and people from different industries, academia, all of them have a big role. So bringing the U.S. government has a really important convening role to bring together all these actors to make sure that Southeast Asia understands that, sure, one administration may do something different, but it doesn't mean that all the other stuff goes away. And all of that is part of U.S. interest, too. Right. Um, so I just to sort of build on, on what Prashant has said as well, I, I definitely agree that the overfocus, I think, on U.S.-Southeast Asia relations, um, on, 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 the, well, on the relationship between governments actually undermines the, uh, the how, how broad cooperation between uh, multiple states stakeholder actors and stakeholders in the U.S. and Southeast Asia has been. We probably shouldn't undermine uh, the power, uh, you know, the strength of U.S. soft power in Southeast Asia. Um, while anti-Americanism is a serious issue, and this is something that we discussed quite intensely, I think, uh, in our 2018 dialogue, specifically in countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, um, there is great appreciation for uh, U.S. education system, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, uh, certain liberal values, so human rights and and, uh, and uh, good governance, um, and U.S. programs like the Young Southeast Asian Leaders Initiative, which was, I think, one of the greatest legacies of the Obama administration, are important because it it allows uh, opportunities for people, for young people in Southeast Asia, to uh, engage with uh, those in the U.S. So think tanks are also reaching out uh, more intensely, I think, in the region. Right, I think. Uh, uh, the Pacific Forum, for example, now has organized events on Vietnam and Indonesia and Singapore. So um, we're, we're definitely seeing uh, strong engagement between multiple uh, actors within the U.S. and Southeast Asian states. And I think the other part is the so broadening is one, deepening is the other one. So I think one of the things we're seeing um, with COVID-19, with protectionism and all of that is it's very hard to get sometimes aggregate cooperation on, say, trade which, you know, Gatra mentioned, even on security, sometimes it's, it's really hard to on maritime security. But right, what we're seeing right now is that there's actually a lot of minilateral mechanisms that are coming up, you know, the, the, the quad, for example, um, there's a lot of sectoral cooperation too. you know, COVID-19 has brought about, you know, interest in digital sustainability, and so on and so forth. And I actually think that's a good thing. Um, and you're seeing slowly the United States is thinking about a US ASEAN leaders summit, the first one that's going to happen in Washington, DC. It's been difficult for them to get the scheduling. Hopefully, we'll we'll get that done soon. And there's an Indo-Pacific economic framework. All of these ideas are great, and I think the key thing will be to say not just we're cooperating on economics or security, but what specifically can we do on climate? What specific projects can we have on infrastructure? And you're seeing that. I think in the U.S. government, there's a great understanding uh, across the board, at least from what I see in the Biden administration, that. We also need to be thinking about not just U.S. ASEAN and U.S. Southeast Asia dialogues, but what are the ministerial dialogues? Let's have an energy ministerial, a transportation ministerial, a health ministerial. And I think that's when we can get to, you know, the gap that I talked about between general understanding of Southeast Asia's importance to like, what are the actual commitments? What can the United States do at, to actual projects in the region? You know, we have a lot of leaders like uh, Indonesian President Joko Widodo. Um, President Jokowi is a very practical, project-focused person, right? So if you talk to him about general geopolitical priorities, he's probably less inclined to listen to you than if you say, here's how it's going to benefit the Indonesian people and here are specific projects that we can talk about. Let me turn to you, uh, Gatra, uh, to see if you have anything to add to, especially, you know, these uh, sort of more specific um, uh, cooperation areas or projects. And, uh, and something that uh, always comes up uh, in these discussions is 
um, U.S. cooperation with bigger states versus U.S. cooperation or um, interest uh, upon smaller states uh, uh, in, in Southeast Asia. So if you can speak to that a little bit as well, is there are there areas where um, the smaller states and the United States uh, can cooperate? There probably is uh, a degree of, um, uh, uh, there is a gap probably in, in that U.S. tends to focus more on the bigger economies of maritime Southeast Asia. Um, and, uh, you know, maritime domain awareness, for example, was at one point a, an important focus. And this obviously leaves out a lot of countries like Myanmar, Laos, and Cambodia. Uh, these three countries have probably been uh, the most difficult for the U.S. to engage historically. Uh, Myanmar, human rights abuses being a serious issue and now uh, since last year with the, with the coup and, and the rise of a junta engagement um, is probably quite almost nil, if, you know, if, if any at all. Um, and, and Cambodia and Laos... Uh, do maintain some some uh, military exchanges, at, well, Cambodia at least with with the U.S. Uh, but I, I think there probably could be more cooperation uh, within uh, uh, climate change and and uh, environmental degradation. Uh, the Mekong River has been a key focus of uh, environmentalists in, and and uh, agent, uh, development agencies from Japan and China um, and and the European Union as well. Uh, that's probably one area where the U.S. can also participate in. I think on just the the smaller countries, you know, I do think you know every time there is this sense of, as, as Gatra was mentioning, overemphasis on bigger powers within Southeast Asia and less of a focus on smaller countries. ASEAN and Southeast Asia does have a way of reminding us that uh, that is very misguided. Uh, the coup in Myanmar is an important example. The annually rotating ASEAN chairmanship is another one. The fact is. You know, the United States, if the United States is trying to get anything done within ASEAN, um, you know, the chair last year was Brunei, the chair this year is going to be Cambodia, then it's going to be Indonesia, then it's going to be Laos, right? So you you really can't get away with not engaging smaller countries. And the other thing I would say, even if one were to view Southeast Asia from the narrow prism of U.S.-China competition, the heart of that competition is going to be among the smaller countries because they're going to be the ones that are the most vulnerable to aspects of foreign influence. And they're also the ones more geographically proximate to China, right? So the, the sort of debt burdens and issues, you're going to see that most clearly in Laos. Um, China's military activities, you've seen that in you know uh, the reports we've seen about a naval base in Cambodia, right? So that's where you're going to be seeing a lot of this. And the Mekong, as Gautra rightly mentioned, is, is a good example of that. What kinds of, um, what kinds of issues are you thinking that might, that might rise from Southeast Asia that might necessitate um, more more U.S. attention in the region. What are some flashpoints that that you're you're seeing potentially? I think human rights is still uh, likely to emerge as a potential uh, issue in U.S. Southeast Asia relations. Uh, occasionally, there have been missteps by the U.S. government um, in, in in bringing in uh, you know issues concerning values to foreign policy matters uh, with with Southeast Asia, and and there is still a lot of concern about liberal evangelism in the region. Speaking to Cambodian officials recently, for example, there is serious concern that uh, political rivalry between Hun Sen and Sam Rainsy, the political opposition leader, could become uh, you know, a, a proxy for great power competition in the future. So human rights will, will likely be concerned for many Southeast Asian states and, and the US. Um, the South China Sea disputes is, of course, another big one. Um, the South China Sea, uh, parts of the South China Sea are claimed by uh, five, uh, you know, four Southeast Asian states, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, 
Brunei and the Philippines. And China uh, claims uh, basically the vast majority of the South China Sea. And it has, in the past four years, seriously militarized it and, and built up basically naval bases and uh, air, air bases. Uh, and uh, while there are codes that uh, that attempt to address any potential escalation of, conf- of, 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 of challenges at sea, um, any misstep, any miscalculation can still lead to potential conflict, especially, and this could involve the United States if, if uh, the, conf- you know, if the incident uh, concerned involves, say, the Philippines, which is a U.S. treaty ally. One thing I'll add on the, on the flashpoints, um, I, I think, you know, there's a couple of ways of thinking about that. One is, you know, the internal domestic flashpoints we've seen with, you know, regime changes in Thailand and Myanmar. We have the sort of sub-regional and, and regional flashpoints we've talked about, like Mekong and the South China Sea. I think the last few months has been an important reminder as well about the role of other regional and global flashpoints and their effects on Southeast Asia. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine has really consumed, I think, how U.S. policymakers are viewing Southeast Asia, for better or for worse. And I think it brings back this important reminder of, you know, trying to pay attention to the region for the region's sake, but also the reality that um, whenever you have a crisis like that, like this that's global, U.S. policymakers will always have the pressure of asking individual Southeast Asian countries, what are you doing with Russia? You know, wh- you know how much are you, you exporting? Um, you know, is there anything you can do about your military links? So I, I think it's, that's an important reminder. Um, and the other one is COVID-19, obviously, um, which we've all been living through. So we don't, probably don't have to say a lot about that. But I would just say, um, you know, COVID-19 and these kinds of shocks and pandemics uh, really have uh, the, if the effects that you have, you see on defense budgets, but also just psychological and social effects in the populations of these countries. You know, the, everything from you know, the, the domestic abuse hotlines that are ringing, you know, off the hook in Malaysia now, and the government has to deal with that, to um, illegal trafficking issues that are coming up in the Mekong on, you know, timber and, and the like. All of these issues are going to be exacerbated. And it gets back to our issue that we talked about at the outset, which is governance, right? If we're going to think about one word or, or way to encapsulate the broader challenge in Southeast Asia, governance challenges are huge. And that's not just going to require governments. It's going to require really a whole of society approach in the United States, working with a whole of society approach in Southeast Asia. As we are coming to the end, um, could we hear your thoughts on China's behavior in Southeast Asia? Do you think there are aspects of it, military and non-military, that will, that will result in um, great power, not just competition, but confrontation? Um, you know, I, I think um, the, the South China Sea, which uh, Gatra talked about, is probably within Southeast Asia, a place where there is a lot of concern um, on potential conflict. But frankly, that's, you know, kind of on the one end of the spectrum. I think the other worry in Southeast Asia, and also, frankly, even in U.S. policy circles increasingly, is that we're going to see a slow normalization of China's behavior and perhaps a, a gradual, not, I wouldn't say acceptance, because I don't think any one of these Southeast Asian countries wants to accept that kind of Chinese hegemony in Southeast Asia that violates international norms and rules. But what are Southeast Asian countries going to actually do about this, particularly the smaller countries in, in Southeast Asia? is a huge challenge. I would say the, the other thing that's, that's been really interesting is um, I, I really, frankly, you know, talking to uh, Southeast Asian policymakers, seeing a real resurgence in 
interest in Taiwan um, as a potential flashpoint in ways that we wouldn't have seen a decade ago. And I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine has really pointed to, you know, if we're dealing with China that that's rising, uh, a power that we've dealt with primarily economically in the past, but increasingly China is seeing itself like any other great power as being, you know, a comprehensive power, right? Somebody that also has interest in the security realm, naturally, in politics and so on and so forth. What does that mean for Southeast Asia in terms of what China does, you know, in Taiwan, when I think it's fair to say um, there's a lot of concerns about U.S. commitment and sustainability in the region, not just commitments that I talked about more specifically, but I think the Trump administration really um, accentuated some of the fears about the staying power of the United States. And obviously, you know, we see these debates come up every 10 or 15 years, you know, is the United States a declining power? And then we had this with Japan, we had this with the Soviet Union. Um, and I, I do think there's a case for confidence to be made in the United States, but frankly, that confidence needs to be earned, right? Um, and so that is something which I think U.S. policymakers will, will have to work to reinforce because ultimately, if Southeast Asia is going to be more confident about its position relative to China, it has to be in the context of a multipolar case where it's not just the United States that's doing more in Southeast Asia. It's Japan, it's Australia, it's South Korea, it's India. And the United States can play a role in helping set that table, but it shouldn't be from that perspective of just bipolar competition. There's a really broader conversation to be had across the region. I think it's become somewhat of a trope now um, in talks on foreign policy in Southeast Asia that uh, you know countries, I guess especially so in Southeast Asia, being quite proximate to China, see China as both an opportunity and a challenge. Um, there is no desire to see any single hegemonic power, well, any power, um, you know, uh, maintain a hegemony, you know, uh, project hegemony over Southeast Asia. And about the same, and, and you know, a lot of Southeast Asian countries are concerned about China's growing military power in South China Sea. I, I think it's important for U.S. officials looking forward to continue focusing on empowering Southeast Asian states and their autonomy, really, uh, their autonomy to be able to decide their own uh, futures and avoid becoming dependent, well, you know, avoid having Southeast Asian states being vulnerable to the risk of economic coercion from China uh, or, uh, you know, uh, even uh, giving them the, the capacity to respond to uh, China's uh, intrusions into their maritime domains. And this includes, among other things, uh, providing them with the technology and um, the resources and capabilities to empower their uh, coast guards and, and navies. And the United States has done that. Um, there probably could be things done in the cyberspace. Um, and, you know, being from the International Cyber Policy Center at ASPE, uh, we've been advocating for uh, more engagement in the region over cybersecurity matters, including, for example, creating uh, a, a group, of, a group of, of, of friends when it comes to cyber issues so that uh, officials can create norms over uh, good engagement in the cyberspace, uh, improving uh, uh, the cyber components of of, uh, maritime, of of in the maritime domain, you know, giving uh, providing assistance to fishery the fishing industries, for example, to be able to monitor uh, what's what's you know what's at sea, uh, how they can cope with potential risks. Uh, so, if the United States, uh, you know, China, uh, China will likely continue to exert as much influence over Southeast Asia as it can, because uh, simply it is a region that is adjacent to it. Um, if the United States wants to play an important role, it has to focus on building up the region's capabilities. Gautra, Prashant, thank you very much for this horizon tour of US-Southeast Asia ties that you guided us on today. And uh, we hope to continue the discussion on this.
Thank you very much. Thanks. Good to join you. The Holling Center for International Dialogue is a nonprofit, non governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations around the world. In pursuit of this mission, the Holling Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen channels of communication across opinion leaders and experts. To learn more, go to hollingcenter.org.